Good afternoon and thanks so much for being with us. Busy show ahead coming up on the program. We are going to talk about the latest on the election trails today. A lot of talk about long-term care facilities, promises made by John Horgan. We'll hear from John Horgan and Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson about that. Also coming up on the program, the stopping of the selling of fur at Nordstrom. The major store has announced that it will stop the sale of exotic fur, exotic animal skin as well, and we're going to get your take on that. But first, we are taking a look at what was happening at the City Council Standing Committee on City Finances and Services. It was a vote to do with housing, particularly a movement that was put forward by Vancouver's mayor, and he was not impressed with how things went at the committee. Uh, yeah, we can vote for action. We can vote to give staff concrete direction uh, based on Councillor Dominato's excellent motion and then a, a well-worked uh, amendment that would, of course, go through the regular public process that all our, our uh, this is again, the first would be a report back from staff in the spring and then a hopefully getting a pilot project off the ground by the fall or uh, not doing anything. Essentially, the city is exactly the same if we vote yes to this uh, referral as it was uh, at 6 o'clock when we started this. So I'm not going to be voting for this, and I'll be disappointed if it passes. Thank you. That was Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking at that meeting yesterday. Let's bring in NPA Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young for her take on this. Thanks again so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, Very well. How about you? Good, thank you. So what exactly happened? This was a lengthy meeting that was it was the making home initiative plan that the mayor had put forward. It sounds like there were a bunch of amendments. Can you break down for us what happened at that meeting? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think my, my first comment would be that it seems like the mayor is more interested in making headlines than in making homes, um, as he's branded it. But what happened is that my fellow um, MPA councillor, Lisa Dominato, brought a motion forward titled The Missing Middle, to look at providing more variety in housing choices and trying to provide more affordability for people in neighborhoods across the city. And the mayor did a PR campaign, um, which he launched, advising that he was planning to bring forward amendments to the motion. Um, But he didn't engage with council at all um, and wasn't, in my view, able to sort of provide confidence to council uh, that the project as he had proposed it was viable. And I think that the resounding vote last night, of which was eight to three, um, to get more um, information back to design a program that council felt would work and would actually deliver on the objective of more affordable homes. That was what that was about. And it was about trying to deliver a project um, that we thought would have the desired results, um, as opposed to actually just being seen to do something that may not be effective. Uh, he sent out uh, a, uh, an email, a news release with a lot of bold lettering in it. Uh, basically, the first line of it says, late last night, a majority of council led by the NPA voted to delay making home indefinitely. It uh, goes on to say that this uh, means that there won't be homes available, affordable homes for hardworking middle income households. So how do you respond to that? Well, I think that's really unfortunate. I think it's hyperbole. I think it's full on politics. Um, this was a vote that was taken a across party lines. It included MPA councillors, included Green councillors, included independent councillor Rebecca Bly. Um, so it, it was the vast majority of council that did not feel that the program was going to deliver on the results the way that it was framed. Um, to single out the MPA councillors um, is an interesting choice to do that. I think it makes it entirely political instead of 
trying to work together um, as a council where there isn't a clear majority on actually coming up with solutions that are going to deliver and and provide some affordability and some relief for people that need it. So I'm not sure why the mayor is politicizing this. Um, I also note, too, that uh, we were actually moved right on to another motion after that, which I had on the docket that was on open parking. And that was about letting the market decide on parking and not requiring parking minimums and looking at how that could contribute to housing affordability. And the mayor excused himself from the meeting, did not participate in that, which also could help affordability in order to go and craft and send out the press release. So to me, this is pure politics and it's disappointing to see. Is it another example, do you think, in that there has been criticism of this mayor being uh, an independent and doing his own thing, not alerting councillors of when he might be bringing a plan like this forward or talking to councillors before sending uh, releases, sending the heads up to media? Uh, Is this, in your mind, another example of that lack of collaboration? I think it's absolutely a lack of that. I mean, I I think back to the uh, campaign of for the election back in 2018. And I remember the mayor said, and Kennedy Stewart said that as an independent mayor, he felt that he would be best suited to collaborate and bring all of council together. Unfortunately, that has not been my experience. And I think that people are dealing with a pandemic, that we already have a snap election provincially. We have some serious issues in the city. We need to focus on dealing with those, not worrying about who's gonna have what job in two years. So I, to me, it's, it's a really disappointing direction that the mayor has taken, and I hope that uh, he can take a step back and we can focus on working together because we are in the job now and we need to do the job. What will this do, do you think, then, as far as if, if there is a push for zoning changes uh, for something, even if it is something like the, the mayor's idea of making more density on housing plots, on single-family zoned housing plots in Vancouver, does this kick everything down and delay it? Or is there still any momentum or any desire to, to find some creative solutions there? Oh, there's absolutely momentum on it. I think that uh, Council sent very clear input to staff last night. Um, We're going to engage with the public in the fall, and I think we'll end up crafting a better program as a result of that to see whether or not people would participate, whether the financials actually pencil out that these homes can be built and they're affordable. Um, The motion became so complicated. The mayor originally positioned it as about affordable housing and ownership. Then he threw in rental. Um, So it wasn't clear what it was trying to achieve. I think that uh, we're going to have some really good input in the fall. We're going to give staff some time, and they understand that council wants to see action and move on this, but we're going to give them some time to really evaluate what's going to work, um, and we're going to get that information back. And absolutely, we're open to pilot projects, but I want that to be informed by residents to see if they will actually do it. Um, And I want to make sure that financially it's going to deliver on the goals. I wanted to ask you as well, while I have you on the line, uh, you mentioned the open parking and I listened to to some of the meeting. I'll fully admit I didn't listen to the entire thing, but I know this was a motion that you brought forward. Uh, I heard the one speaker talking about Fifth Avenue cinemas as an example, uh, where the parking lot is never full, uh, apart from maybe one day a year, whereas other cinemas have been wildly successful without having underground parking. Can you talk a little bit, what what would actually change if this was adopted, if Vancouver relaxed uh, the requirements for parking? So what would change is that right now we have regulation that requires what they call minimum parking levels, and that applies. It is not flexible um, across the board, and that's in both housing as well as commercial uses and things like theaters or retail as well. Um, And so that means that you you can't sort of really look at the constraints of a site. Say you're trying to redo a 
retail space or build something new um, and look at sort of the specific location um, what's appropriate there. But the gentleman, Mr. Shine, who used to own Fifth Avenue Theatres, um, shared how he had to build six floors of parking. And like you said, it was only full on Boxing Day. He said people use maybe level one, maybe sometimes level two. Um, and that's really expensive to build. It adds to the timeline of a project. Um, and it's also bad for the environment. We know that embodied emissions coming from concrete and GHGs are one of the most significant that we can actually work to reduce. And so where do things stand with that motion right now? So happily, that motion passed unanimously. The mayor was absent. He didn't stay for the vote, but uh, it did pass unanimously um, with the, the councillors that were present. And we will get uh, some recommendations for changing that strategy and, and looking at uh, updating bylaws and making sure that we maintain things like accessibility and drop-offs and services and loading and that kind of thing. Um, but we'll get that back before the end of the year. All right, because I guess one of the concerns there might be if you don't have underground parking, if there, aren't, if there isn't that available or that is an option in cases where people have to drive, don't have the option of getting around in some other way, uh, that pushes the cars, it pushes the vehicles onto, onto the street parking or into, into other uh, residential areas or some other places where it could cause congestion. Yeah, I think what's really important to to know here is that it doesn't mean no parking uh, or not building parking. It means it's market demand. So if you have something like a retail area, people are going to want to have that for their customers. It's going to be a need. Um, And so if you have accessibility requirements and you're building seniors housing, that's obviously going to be fundamental and critical. It just provides more flexibility to respond to the individual situations, um, but it doesn't suggest that no parking will be built. We might see it in some rental projects, for example, that are right near transit. Um, or serve a specific a specific need or a specific group of people. Um, but the intent is not that we're going to end up with zero parking. All right. Uh, Councillor Kirby Young, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you, as always. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, I know a lot of people in this province have been looking to other parts of this country, other parts of the world that are seeing an increase in COVID-19 cases. When we're looking at Canada, if we look to Ontario, we see the cases going up and some new modelling numbers showing that they could start hitting 1,000 cases per day. We're also seeing some of the restrictions that initially came into place being brought back in parts of Quebec, saying that the restaurants, bars, other places that were closed earlier will be closed again for a 28-day period to try and bend that curve down once again. But what does that mean as far as the social restrictions and people buying into another crackdown, another wave of restrictions? Well, Steve Jordans is a psychology professor at the University of Toronto and joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Thank you so much for being with us. Great to be with you, Jill. Thank you. Do you think, so what, what is different in your mind as far as how people react or will respond to restrictions coming back? Yeah, uh, I mean, we've heard all through people have tried to be careful and tell us that, you know, this could be a roller coaster ride, that there could be steps back as well as steps forward. And so I think we know all, knew all that in our mind and, and none of us are perhaps surprised to see a second wave and to see numbers come back. But emotionally, you know, we're, we're both intellectual beings and we're emotional beings. And to go from that feeling like, okay, we're, we're gradually getting back to a, a kind of life we know and love and taking steps that direction, uh, and then to have it kind of snatched away and feel like, oh, no, no, we're not. And, and this could just be the second wave of many, etc. It's It's akin to some of the experiments done on something called learned helplessness, where, where people can start to feel, you know, initially empowered, okay, we're going to bend the curve, we're going to do all that, and they see that it's having an effect, and so that feels good. 
but then when it turns the other way, it can have the sort of reverse effect and make us start to feel like, holy crow, there's there's nothing we can really do about this um, that's really going to change or, or bring us back to where we were quickly. This is something we're just going to have to hunker down and endure and, you know, obviously do the, do the right things, but even doing the right things is going to take a while. So I think emotionally for a lot of us, it, it's a bit of a, a bit of a punch in the in the gut uh, and we're all kind of you know bracing ourselves to figure out how we're going to do this especially with the winter coming so we have you know seasonal affective disorder um, to be thinking about on top of these sorts of things and so it's a tough time uh, to be heading into wave two for sure. Uh, do you think it's more difficult to get people to buy into it and to go along with it maybe with it with the same rigor that we saw the first time? Well, I mean, I think it can go e- either way, and it's it'll, it's interesting to see. I mean, at the outset of this, I, I certainly don't want to suggest psychologists, you know, knew what was going to happen or could predict human behavior. And by and large, I at least was pretty impressed by the level uh, to which people were willing to, you know, abide, especially during those isolation times, that they were willing to stay home and accept this radically different way of living and just kind of trust that. You know, somehow their their economic situation will be okay at the end. Um, so we, I think we were pretty good. We always noted all the exceptions, of course, and called out all the all the people acting in weird ways. Um, but now the question is, will will we start to feel so so disempowered that we feel like nothing we do matters anyway? So we might as well do whatever we want. You know, that's the kind of one extreme. The other extreme is to say, you know, no, no, we were pretty good last time, but pretty good apparently wasn't good enough. Um, we're going to have to really kind of, if we, you know, the, if we're going to isolate again uh, and and go as far back as things like that, well, let's freaking do it right. And and that means getting as many people on board, maybe having tougher fines and such on people that aren't playing along. And and, and you know, maybe there is this feeling like it will come and go and come and go unless we really, really go, you know, 100% effort or do the sports analogy, 110%, unless we give 110%. So I'm not sure where we're going to fall on those two. Um, I, I hope it's the latter. We all want to be on the other side of this. And and really the only way to do that is to defeat the virus and, and do everything we can to make that happen. You mentioned the season as well, that we are going into winter where it's much darker. Uh, people are looking forward to things like Christmas and other vacations. How does that play into it? Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, you think sort of Thanksgiving is is next on tap or whatever. It's a weird year for Thanksgiving, right? I mean, some people might say it's it's, it's the perfect year for Thanksgiving in the sense that we should be looking at silver linings and, and the positives in our life because many of us still do have a lot of positives in our life. But generally... Um, one of the horrible things about COVID is is we punctuate our lives with these sorts of events. Uh, and so, yeah, across the year, we have these big events that we hit. And, and then even at, at a smaller scale, we have, you know, things we did on the weekends and, and events we did with our family, like going in a pumpkin farm or something like that. And suddenly a lot of these events have been kind of robbed from us. And, you know, we look forward to those things. They're kind of what, what, mark our time and and kind of guide us through our lives and as all of these things become really problems now like how are we going to do thanksgiving families are are sort of struggling with questions like that and what's christmas going to actually look like this year um it it just is a constant reminder that we're living at 
in this time when nothing is the way it should be. And our brain doesn't like that. Our brain likes to be able to predict how things happen. It likes them to happen in a sort of regular expected way. And when that isn't happening, we become anxious. We, we feel like things aren't right. We feel like we're living under threat, which we are. And, and that anxiety response starts to hum along in us all the time. And, and that's, that's a potentially dangerous place to be. It, it, it literally can uh, negatively affect your immune system if you're chronically anxious. And obviously, none of us want that right now. No. And it is so different when even with the strictest restrictions that we saw and, and, and not talking about, uh, you know, visiting long-term care, uh, the types of things that really, really uh, caused a lot of, of pain and emotional pain for people. But even in the, during those restrictions, we still had the option of going to the beach. We would still mm-hmm. go and socialize, albeit at a distance with people. Yeah. We could find ways to get around it, which you can't really do in December. Yeah, I mean, it's... That, I, I'm, I have trouble actually even just thinking about the winter that's coming because it is sort of a double whammy on, on so many levels. I mean, at, at, in some ways, I guess one could argue that in summer there's a greater temptation to be out doing things, uh, and that probably did partly contribute to you know some of the lack of compliance we saw. And so maybe winter is a better time to see widespread compliance um, because there really isn't that much to do anyway and and maybe that's good in terms of reducing the the virus numbers but psychologically yeah those those little escapes we did get you know for me walking my dog on a on a regular basis it was pretty much it during isolation but that was a nice you know half hour in the morning and a nice half hour at night and and had a big had a lot to play in terms of my sort of mental health and, and keeping me feeling like I wasn't basically a prisoner um, I worry those things are going to be harder in winter. Um, I, I would suggest people still try to do those things. This this may be a time when you invest in, you know, here's my dog walking advice for you or what <laughs> I've learned from dog walking. If you have the right gear, it doesn't matter what it's like outside. As long as you have those right jackets and, and gloves and scarves and whatever, and in fact, the worst day can be quite enjoyable if you're suitably appareled. <laughs> so this might be a time when people should say, you know, I don't care that it's winter. I'm, I need that fresh air. I need that little hit of sunshine. Uh, and so I'm going to make sure I have the, the gear I need so that I can get out there and I can still escape my house uh, now and then. The, the other thing I would really highlight um, is our go-to reaction to anxiety and stress is through social connections. And of course, that's also been made very hard with COVID. Um, but it's, it's again, physical distancing, not social distancing. And I think as we go into the winter, um, we want to anticipate that it's going to be kind of a, a lonely, cold feeling, and we want to try to counteract that. And, and I would recommend by literally budgeting time every day to connect with people. It could be your family members that you wish you'd connect with a little bit more or, or past friends or somebody that you know maybe is kind of alone and would really appreciate it as well. Uh, but to budget some time to reach out to somebody and maybe even make it a regular occurrence. Hey, can I give you a call on Tuesday nights and we just touch base, talk about what we've been doing for the week. And, you know, what you say doesn't really matter. It's the tone that comes through and the feeling that you, that you actually care about that person and that person cares about you. That's very important for carrying, carrying us through. And so I, I would almost think of that as a sort of medicine of a sort that we should budget into our days in, in a regular way to kind of keep us as insulated as possible as we go through all this. 
And just uh, just before I let you go, what, what do you say, though, to because one of the real things I think that causes despair even is, like you said, we, we feel like we did so much. We, we yeah. stop doing things and, and we want we want to have be rewarded for that. We want to see a positive change from that. So when we see the numbers going back up again, it does feel like, well, what's the point of doing this again if it's not going to work? Yeah. Yeah, and and the and the greater worry, you know, I talked about that sort of learned helplessness, is, is that some some people kind of argue that that is the path to depression. So we've been living in a lot of anxiety right now. Anxiety is uncomfortable. Um, it's not healthy to have high level of anxiety too long. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not nearly as dangerous as depression. Um, when when we really start to feel deeply depressed, that's when you know thoughts of suicide and things like that creep in. And and a lot of people, you know, it's the mental disorder that kills the most people. So I think we have to be wary for that in ourselves and in others. We got to be kind of watching for those those signs, which which is largely this this complete feeling of disempowerment. Nothing I do matters, and and I bring no value to this life or to, or to this world. If we start seeing those sort of hints in a, in other people, those are keys to really you know reach out to some of those mental health supports that are available and such. Uh, especially if we're feeling it in ourselves, uh, this will pass. You know, we have to keep telling ourselves that even the 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 1918 flu or whatever, it may have lasted for three years. And that sounds absolutely horrible that people had to take three years to kind of figure out how to live with it. But they did. And and life continued. And, you know, it sucks if we all lose three years of, of, of our of our lives that could have been a lot richer. But we'll get to the other side of those three years. And we'll really appreciate um, that when we get there. And, you know, we have to keep that in mind. And we have to fight our way through in, until that time and, and develop any mental strength we can along the way. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Well, some new numbers show that thousands of British Columbians are needlessly facing premature death. And to talk more about this and to explain a bit more on who we are talking about, I am joined by Dan Howe, who is the Special Olympics BC President and CEO. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for bringing up this very important topic. Uh, well, the headline and, and the the notes that I, I were given on this, I mean, the headline is extremely jarring and, and concerning. So talk a bit, if you can, uh, about who is dying uh, prematurely and why this is happening. It's hard to believe uh, that in British Columbia, we have a portion of our population, those individuals with intellectual disabilities, who will die up to 20 years earlier than the general public. And when we looked uh, into it more, we found that there's nothing inherently uh, wrong in terms of the intellectual disability. That's not what's causing it. It's the other aspects of their life that uh, we can do something about. And if we do something about that, not only will we extend the life of individuals with intellectual disability, their life will be much better and they will be much more active and productive members of our society. Uh, So how do we make that change? Well, there's a number of things. So first of all, uh, people with an intellectual disability will uh, go to the hospital two to three times more than the average person. And we can work on that. They'll uh, have two to three times more the rate of obesity. And mental illness, and especially now in a time of COVID, is much higher. They're overly medicated, not always because of a medical issue, but sometimes because of a behavior issue. And so if we change the way that 
we look at the individual with an intellectual disability and the way we treat that individual, we'll have better outcomes. And one of the key things we have to do is talk to people with an intellectual disability about their experience and talk to their caregivers and involve them in this discussion about how do we make things better for them. And when you talk about things like uh, hospitalizations, uh, higher rates of obesity, of, of men- mental illness, uh, and that, is it a question of money in that that the income isn't as much or that people aren't able to access, say, healthier food or, or things that would, would help them have a healthier lifestyle? There's a number of issues within there. So first of all, uh, people with an intellectual disability, as in everybody, need to be active. If we want to address obesity and uh, healthier lifestyles, we need to get people active. And so many of the individuals within our program are relying upon somebody else to get them there. So um, they, they need that support. Secondly, when we work with parks and rec organizations, they have a fee structure that they need to have in place to to make sure that they're um, their programs are viable or not. And quite often, those are too expensive for people with an intellectual disability. And in the school setting, quite often, the person with the intellectual disability is the person who's sitting on the sideline as the manager or the person who's uh, put in goal. They're not always the person who's picked first to say, come on and be on our team. And because of that, they're not getting the activity there. So we really need to change how we look at the activity level. In terms of your, your point about nutrition, Uh, the data would indicate that less than 10% of people with an intellectual disability eat a balanced, nutritious uh, diet. And and part of that is because they can't afford it, and part of it is they don't always have the same rights you or I have to choose our food. They may be in a living situation where somebody else uh, chooses what they're going to eat, and that could be for convenience. It could be because there's three or four other people living there who also have their likes and dislikes. So there's a number of of factors within that area. In terms of the mental health issue, um, there there was a study that just came out recently that uh, has been broadcast on the the radio station talking about young people who, through the COVID uh, period, are facing higher levels of mental illness and that. Well, people with an intellectual disability, this is nothing new for them. They have been isolated and left behind and forgotten about for years and years and years. And so when a program like Special Olympics uh, isn't able to operate fully, quite often they're left at home, they're isolated, they're missing their friends, they're just not engaged the same way as everybody else. And that in itself will heighten their uh, uh, issues around mental health. Uh, I know uh, your organization, Special Olympics BC, is calling on all of the candidates uh, currently running in the election to commit to, to making changes, to doing things. Uh, are you confident at all that, that you can press and get that uh, commitment, get uh, at least those discussions happening? The issue around health for people with an intellectual disability didn't start at COVID. It, it has been building for years and years and years. COVID has just highlighted the inequality that exists for people with uh, an intellectual disability through health. And so we as Special Olympics can fix part, but we can't fix the whole system. We can't make the change that's needed. We need government involvement in that process. And for that reason, we're reaching out to all candidates and asking them to commit to making real 
uh, change, lasting change, and to uh, um, making a, taking a stance to say this isn't acceptable in British Columbia, and we're appalled by it, and we're going to do whatever we can to make a difference. Now, we may need your listeners and other people uh, engaged to say, I'm not okay with this either, and to reach out to candidates and say, what's your position on this, and are you prepared to make a commitment to this? So more people will take on the issue of health for people with intellectual disabilities, so our communities are are that much greater and that much better because of their involvement. Uh, would there be one thing or, or one top thing that you can think of that if, if that change was implemented, it would make a big difference? Well, it, it's a complex problem, and we we need a lot of different areas of uh, uh, involvement. So it could be, you know, the universities, training doctors and uh, healthcare professionals so that when they come out, they feel comfortable. It's not that they don't have the knowledge. They may just not have the exposure to people with intellectual disabilities on how to relate to them, how to bring out the issues, how to give them the time that they may need to express their issues. It could be working with the health system to change the way that we address people with intellectual disabilities. So right now we are looking at so many different areas. If you have a mental health issue, you go here. If you have uh, um, another health issue, you go here. We could set up panels to work with people so that we can talk about the individual as a whole and that when somebody changes the medication, the rest of the the uh, uh, care professionals can understand what that change is going to be and weigh in on that. So we need that. But we also need the government, uh, the health ministry, uh, to make this a priority, to say this is unacceptable, and to look at some of the underlying conditions that are impacted around uh, um, over-prescription of medications that you may be fixing one area, but you're also then causing other areas that uh, could involve uh, making their health actually worse. So we need to uh, take a look at that. It's not a simple fix, but it's something that we absolutely have to address and we have to engage the person with the intellectual disability in the process so they can tell us what their experience is like. All right. Uh, Dan Howe, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for uh, discussing this, and we would really encourage your listeners to get engaged and ask their candidates uh, how they feel about this issue. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, uh, we've been talking about it on this show. The BC NDP is promising to not only permanently boost the wages of those working in long-term care, but also promising renovations to long-term care facilities to phase out multi-bedrooms to, uh, as John Horgan said earlier today, give seniors dignity and to give them their own rooms. Let's bring in Terry Lake, who is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, to talk a bit more about this. Uh, Terry Lake is on the phone with us. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you again, Jill. Uh, what is your reaction to uh, the announcement that was made today? Well, anytime you're uh, investing in seniors care, uh, we certainly support that. $1.4 billion over 10 years will go a long way to replacing the older bed stock that we see in health authority owned and operated long-term care homes. Uh, my question would be, what about the increased demand uh, that we know is facing us as baby boomers 
uh, age into the uh, the seniors care uh, sector. And I'm not sure that this announcement addresses the additional beds. It certainly will go a long way to replacing uh, the current beds that uh, health authorities are uh, operating at the moment. Uh, with the announcement of the, the top-up, and we've been talking about that during the pandemic, something that I think the, the number is that it's costing government another $10 million a month. Uh, John Horgan said uh, today that uh, he wants to make that permanent. Do you think that's feasible? Well, it, it comes at a cost, obviously, to the government, but um, I think they recognize that uh, compared to other uh, jurisdictions around the world, Canada spends about 30% less on long-term care uh, than uh, than those jurisdictions. So there has been a, an underfunding that's gone on across Canada, and that's really been laid bare uh, because of COVID in many ways. So uh, we all support the ability for people working in long-term care to have a living wage, and uh, but it does come uh, at a price tag, and uh, I, and I think the Premier understands that. The, um, the Premier was asked about private operators of care facilities. He didn't go uh, as far as uh, what some of the unions have been calling for, which is getting rid of, of eliminating private operators, saying that there is a vision that includes public and private operators. So how do you see that working? Well, uh, it's an election campaign, Jill, so I understand some of the hyperbole that uh, tends to uh, to get out there and to say that you know, private uh, providers uh, are the reason why long-term care was affected uh, so dramatically by COVID simply isn't borne out by the facts. And then, you know, when you look at data uh, across North America, uh, the ownership model actually doesn't correlate with the impact of COVID-19 in Quebec, where most of the long-term care homes are government-run. They had a terrible situation there. And uh, in BC, uh, a, a study by the Canadian Medical Association uh, noted that BC did far better than Ontario, and we have similar models, but things we did together in BC, that's nonprofits, for profits, uh, the health authorities, and the Ministry of Health working together really mitigated uh, the impact of COVID 19. And so it's really not the ownership model, it's, um, it's the way we deliver care here in BC that I think has made a difference. Uh, what about, though, the discrepancies that have been pointed out in the past in uh, that uh, in the report that was done by the seniors advocate by Isabel McKenzie, uh, finding that uh, there, there wasn't the delivery of, of the hours, the care hours for which they were funded, the delivery from from some of the privately operated homes was far less than the public homes and the workers were paid about six dollars an hour less. Well, you know, the our organization, the BC Care Providers, took issue with that report at the time. Um, you know, we we understand that the role of the seniors advocate is to make sure that there is a complete transparency, and and we all want to make sure that that is the case. That we are held to a high standard, and that we're all transparent about that. Uh, so, you know, BC has been on a path, whether it's the former government or this government, to increase the number of uh, 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 care hours provided every single day to uh, to the highest in the country at 3.36. And so, you know, we uh, certainly advocate for that and we support that and we will make sure that that is what is delivered uh, to residents under our care. And with the making the single site worker permanent, is that do you think that's possible or, or how will that follow through when we are and we're, we're being told and, and we're optimistic that we will be out of this pandemic at some point? How do you see that continuing? Well, you know, it's it is a great idea in many ways, but it does come with some challenges, Jill, and that is a lack of a casual pool because 
workplaces um, in long-term care do have a need for a casual pool. There are times of the day when the workload is much greater than it is at other times of the day, whether that's around, uh, you know, in the morning getting people up and ready for breakfast or whether it's in the evening. Uh, And so having that casual pool uh, is very helpful for all operators, whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit. So we do need to think about ways that we can manage this um, health human resources challenge that we have coming at us. We've been talking about this for years, that we don't have enough trained people ready to uh, to serve the, the needs of seniors in care. Uh, so we're working closely uh, with our members and with the government to uh, to make sure there is a proper human health uh, resources strategy uh, that can meet the demands of seniors care in the future. Uh, and just to, to go back to something you'd said too about the fact that this money, the, the 10-year plan, uh, a $1.4 billion plan to renovate existing homes uh, doesn't address the need for more beds. So how will how is that even possible then if we know we are going to need more beds, if this is to renovate and to provide single rooms, how do we how are we going to meet the needs? Well, the need uh, over the last 10 years has been largely met through the uh, non-government contracted sector, whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit. Uh, so we saw uh, an RFP go out in the interior recently for 400 beds. And, you know, the um, whether you're a not-profit or for-profit organization, you can, you can build those uh, new beds and in, in many cases do it far more effectively uh, than you can as a, as a health authority. So replacing those health authority beds, we all think that's a great idea. Uh, those, lo- those older multi-bed wards are really a thing of the past and need to be replaced. But we need to not just replace that old stock, we need to think about uh, the demand that's coming at us for increased number of spaces. And I think the private sector can be a part of that solution. All right, Terry Lake, we'll leave it there. We're right out of time today, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill.